Welcome to Sex Care is Self-Care, conversation on women's sexual health, brought to you by the Patty Brisbane Foundation for Women's Sexual Health. I'm your host, Patty Brisbane. And with us today is Dr. Michael Critchman, chair of the Patty Brisbane Foundation Medical Advisory Board, to discuss one of our six focus areas. Hi, Dr. Critchman. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Hi, Patty. It's so great to be here to uh, chat with you about the PBF and our focus areas of uh, research. And uh, just wanna thank you again for all you're doing for women and women's sexual health and the commitment to research. It's really important. And, you know, funds are drying out, but, you know, we're really moving ahead. So it's really exciting that we are really changing the face of women's sexual health uh, through good quality research. So, um, you know, I'm a sexual medicine physician, I'm also a sex therapist and sex counselor. So I have a different perspective. I kind of look at the biopsychosocial aspects of sexuality and how that impacts women. But I also have a little uh, background in psychology. So I try to, you know, include things like uh, discussions about partners, about relationships. So it's not only, you know, veins, arteries, nerves, and medication, it's also looking at the complete picture. And I have a focus in a lot of different areas. One of my uh, focuses really is on cancer and chronic medical conditions. So it's great to be here to chat with you today. Thank you. And it's great that you're part of um, our team and uh, helping us make decisions where this funding's going. So thank you so much and thank you for being here. I'm going to start asking with the most basic question. What, what is libido and what is, what is desire and how common are sexual health problems related in this area? Well, let's start with the easier question. Sexual problems are very, very common. So I always say, look to your right, look to your left. Uh, and one of you has a sexual problem and remember somebody's looking at you. So throughout our whole life cycle, everyone will experience a sexual problem, whether it's related to a situation, whether it's related to something that's going on, you know, your sexual interest or sexual desire waxes and wanes. So the desire, the interest, the kind of innate hunger to be intimate. And I'm trying to use my words carefully because sometimes sexual desire has nothing to do about sex itself. Um, So some women really explain sexual desire as this internal femininity, this sensuality. Uh, It's how they carry themselves, how they feel confident. Um, It's much more than just being uh, interested in being intimate with a partner. So sexual desire, thoughts, fantasies, um, really about being intimate, whether it's with yourself, with a partner, or even just thinking about um, erotic experiences could be considered sexual desire. So libido, desire, interest, they're all really uh, one of the same. Uh, The interesting thing is, um, you know, for many, many years, we thought men and women had the same biology, really, and the same sexual desire. And now we know after lots of study and research that both men and women experience sexual desire very, very differently. Men much more hormonally based, uh, you know, very dependent on their testosterone levels and what have you. Uh, Certainly they're impacted by psychological things, uh, whether it's stress or fatigue um, or relationship issues. 
Uh, on the other hand, women really, for many, many years, we've been just, we just associated sexual desire with, um, you know, non-medical issues. We, we said, oh, she doesn't have desire. She must be stressed out. She must be fatigued. She must be overworked. Uh, she must be depressed. Um, and now we're really learning, Patty, about the biological aspects of female desire. So again, it's an interplay between biology and psychology, as well as relationship issues as well. So we know as women age, the estrogen level drops. So are you seeing as when men age, the testosterone levels drop as well? Yes. So from, and remember also women have testosterone as well. Mm -hmm. And testosterone may be linked, especially in the premenopausal woman, it may be linked to uh, changes in desire. So we certainly see a lot of uh, implications of lowering testosterone. And you know, unfortunately, after 30, it's all kind of downhill. It all goes downhill in terms of testosterone levels and estrogen levels for women, and men start having a decline in testosterone levels as well. Okay. I know that there's a lot of outside forces that can cause a lower libido. I'm thinking specifically about medications. Can you talk about that? Well, the biggest culprit, Patty, is the antidepressant medications, the SSRI, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And, you know, uh, we certainly see a whole variety of medications. There's over 300 medications that cause vaginal dryness. And, you know, if sex is painful, you're not going to be interested in having sex. So, you know, by, by default, many of these medications impact the sexual response cycle. They cause vaginal dryness, they cause irritation, um, as well as some of the cancer medications like aromatase inhibitors, they'll impact your libido by way of causing severe dryness. But the SSRIs really have been known to impact desire and arousal. And really the important thing to remember is really a temporal association. What that means is you start the medication and about five to six weeks later, you're noticing a major change. And um, that could be impactful as well. So there's you know certain antidotes, there's different ways you can do your, take your medication, you can switch to a different medication as well. And one last medication that I think is worth mentioning is the combined oral contraceptive pill. Remember the, or the oral, contraceptive pill, it goes, it travels to your liver. The, the impact is it creates a, a protein called sex hormone binding globulin, and that kind of eats up all your free testosterone. So when you're on birth control pills, your testosterone level can plummet. And there's a subset of women, again, that will experience low libido when they're on the birth control pill. But let's kind of put that into perspective. There's over 300 million women uh, worldwide that are on the birth control pill and unintended pregnancy is a huge issue. And for every woman that has low libido on the birth control pill, I could probably find a woman who has high libido on the birth control pill, uh, which means she's not worried about getting pregnant. Uh, her acne has cleared up. Her painful periods are no longer happening. So it's not a clear cut story. And that's important to remember because it's all linked to testosterone. And remember, testosterone is one of the treatments for low libido, and it has about a 50% placebo effect, which means I tell 100 women, 
you know, this is a miracle uh, drug and it's really water, 50% of women will come back and feel much better. So there's no such thing as a magic bullet, unfortunately, when we're talking about libido and sexual desire. That's so true. There is a profound impact on sexual and emotional health for women suffering from the from low libido. Uh, yet there's only two two medications to treat women, um, as compared to right now 26, 27 uh, that the FDA has approved medications for men. What, what do you think about this, and why? Well, you know, it goes back to some of the fundamentals. I mean, we used to think, you know, in, in just to be blunt, we used to think women were men without a, without a penis in terms of how they acted. And we are just really at the infancy in terms of learning. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also different requirements. And, you know, if you look through the FDA, um, it's really an arduous and uphill battle to get medications um, approved. Um, the number of women in studies is astronomical. The length of the studies are much longer than those that with men. Um, and the bar is much higher in terms of uh, approving medication. I was fortunately enough to be at the FDA for some of these hearings for one of the medications, Fluvanserin, that came to the market a while back. And it was really remarkable how um, the paternalism or the concept of protecting women uh, against this, you know, their own uh, sexuality was really prevalent. Um, so there's a lot of uphill battles that, um, drug makers and, uh, and um, consumers have to face. So there is really a discrepancy in terms of getting drugs approved uh, as well. And I think it's also because it's much more challenging to show effects as well. That's interesting because it does seem very one-sided when it comes to the FDA making approvals for women. And um, somehow I really do believe that that needs yeah. to change. And it, it's interesting, if you look at the label for Cialis, um, which is one of the erectile dysfunction drugs, um, it says in the, in the label that men should be precaution not to drink more than three beverages, alcoholic beverages. But when phlebanserin came out, women had to sign a uh, waiver. Uh, they had to sign a consent. Um, they had to go to an, a certified physician and a certified a pharmacy to get the medication. And they basically had to do a, a swearing that they weren't going to drink at all. Because if you had two drinks, right, you could have increased hypotension. So they felt like, oh, women can't be trusted to make good decisions, but men can. So it's just like this, that one example of how men and women were treated differently with alcohol. So, you know, the, the, original um, approval with Lubanserin, you had to be a certified physician, you had to go through a REMS program, and women had to sign consent forms. Um, that has subsequently changed when there was further data out there, uh, and the FDA kind of pulled back on their regulation, but it was an uphill battle as well. Thank you. That's very interesting. Okay. What is the best place to start if someone thinks this isn't just a phase and they, they really need help? Where did they go? 
Well, I think, you know, the most important thing is to be empowered to talk about the issues. And sometimes, you know, peer to peer, sometimes talking to your girlfriends is the best thing that you can do to realize, one, you're not alone. So there's a lot of resources available. Um, one, you know, especially not only um, the Patty Brisbane Foundation has great resources about sexual desire, but even Pure Romance, some of the consultants are well versed in it. Uh, you know, and I think we really realize that a lot of women speak to other women and not be isolated. And again, I think it's it's challenging sometimes to talk to your healthcare professional. We do have resources uh, at the PBF, how to talk to your provider, uh, how to build an appropriate sexual healthcare team. I think those are really important resources to start with. Uh, and again, you know, we always talk about uh, your relationship with your healthcare provider. Mm -hmm. uh, if they're not meeting your needs, you know, it's time to break up, you know, and again, there are a lot of healthcare professionals out there who are interested in the in comprehensive care. And when I say comprehensive care, it's not just focused on your mammogram or your pap smear. They really want to know how you're doing from diet to exercise to stress reduction and sexuality as well. Because, you know, you and I share the same belief, sexual health is general health. Yes. And I think it's really important that we become comfortable with it. And it's like anything else that's new, right? When you go to the doctor, you're afraid of uh, talking about that mole on your arm, because what if, what if it's something, a problem? And what if I can't get it treated? And talking about sex is the same, is the same fear and concern that you're going to be dismissed, that you're not going to be validated, or that there's going to be nothing to do this, what can I do to help it? But again, I think the more you, we talk about it, the more we do podcasts like this, the more that women are listening and becoming empowered, then they will have the words to speak to their friends, their healthcare providers and get help. So you're saying that if maybe you go to your doctor and he tells you just to get a bottle of wine and a sexy nightgown, you might want to change? A hundred percent. And and you know what, Patty? It's funny because I collect old sexuality uh, booklets. and. Yeah. It was about 40 years ago that that was the number one treatment. Mm -hmm. It was have a glass of wine, take a warm bath and go buy, you know, shopping for shoes. Yeah. That was the number one treatment. And we know that there is so much more to um, libido, not only veins, arteries, nerves, neurotransmitters, testosterone, but let's not minimize the issues of stress and fatigue and homeschooling and Zoom fatigue and COVID craziness um, and financial stress and right. other pressures that are impacting us on a day-to-day -day basis, they certainly have far-reaching implications. So we really need to think about that. And, you know, I always joke and say sometimes the best treatment for uh, low libido is a boyfriendectomy or a husbandectomy. Sometimes <laughs> the relationship is not salvageable. Yeah. And sometimes there's um, abuse. And let's not minimize that. There's verbal abuse, there's isolation, there's sexual abuse, um, and there's power struggles that really are impactful. So again, a lot of different variables. 
Um, but if you have the right clinician, if you have the right commitment, you can really be, you know, a sexual health detective and find out what are the impactful issues and take steps to rectify them. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Michael Critchman, for a great, great conversation. For more information on the Patty Brisbane Foundation for Women's Sexual Health, our six focuses, and to download our Let's Discuss Patient Pocket Cards to start a conversation with your doctor, visit thepattybrisbanefoundation.org. Remember, sex care is self-care and sexual health matters. Thanks, Thank Patty. you, Dr. Richmond. Thanks, Patty. Thank you.